The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we begin today with a quote from Leonard Wolf. Quote, All through her life, Virginia Woolf used at intervals to write short stories. It was her custom, whenever an idea for one occurred to her, to sketch it out in a very rough form and then to put it away in a drawer. Later, if an editor asked her for a short story and she felt in the mood to write one, which was not frequent, she would take a sketch out of her drawer and rewrite it, sometimes a great many times. Or if she felt, as she often did while writing a novel, that she required to rest her mind by working at something else for a time, she would either write a critical essay or work upon one of her sketches for short stories. End quote. The short story, not her preferred medium, almost an afterthought to her novels, a rest for her mind. And yet, as we'll see, there's nothing restful about her story, A Haunted House. It's a story about restlessness told in a restless way. We're going to hear one of these brief stories, A Haunted House, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you to the many people who have written kind words over the years, words of praise and support including the kind and generous fellow who left a review suggesting that my irritating voice would have made me a perfect candidate to go into silent films. Why, oh why, wondered this helpful saint, did you not become a silent film actor? Look, people, (laughs) do I have to spell everything out for you? Do you not put two and two together? It's because my face is worse. Even more irritating. So, the the silent films, that booming industry. <laughs> the silent films do not have their Jack Wilson. And the, the, the History of Literature podcast has that cross to bear. Bearing its cross with its eyes cast downward and its fingers in its ears. But enough about me and my helpful supporters. Let's turn to Virginia Woolf. Why don't we just take a quick break, hear the story, then analyze it together? Maybe maybe we should also talk for a minute about haunted houses before we do that. Is there anything close to houses in terms of what ghosts choose to haunt? Hotels and mansions are really just houses of another sort. Do they haunt the fields or the rivers or the waterfalls or the garbage dumps? Maybe sometimes. Not as often as houses. Cemeteries, certainly they haunt those. But then that's kind of ghosts being lazy, isn't it? Ghosts who can't be bothered to walk a few blocks or hop on the bus to get home. Do ghosts haunt the sky? A tree? A grain of sand on a beach? You ever picked up a grain of sand and shivered, thinking that it was haunted by a ghost? I doubt it. Why do they want to be in the house so much? So they can pretend to have a home again, live life as if it's still theirs to live? Would they be lonely if they were haunting the dark side of the moon or a snowflake on some distant planet? Do they get some kick out of shocking us? Is that why? 
They want to make us feel their presence. They need us. They're getting their revenge on life or something that happened to them or the way that they died by making us, innocent parties, squirm. Do ghosts have a choice of what they haunt? Is there some cosmic force that traps them in the house where they lived, depositing them there against their will, never letting them escape? If you were a ghost, would you haunt the house you lived in? You'd stay there forever? Would you, wouldn't you trade up at some point? Get a better house? After, after a few centuries, wouldn't you look for something a bit more modern? Something with a bit more room? Find a place with a view? But we don't think about these questions from the ghost point of view, except sometimes to wonder about motive. Instead, we think about us. And what it's like to feel that uncanny sensation that our domestic castle, the one whose doors and windows we lock, the place where we feel safest. We think about what it's like to be disturbed there. Our peace might be invaded by something supernatural. That's what we usually think. The story we're about to hear doesn't limit itself in that way. Welcome to October, where the uncanny reigns supreme. Virginia Woolf is next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. A Haunted House by Virginia Woolf Whatever hour you woke, there was a door shutting. From room to room they went, hand in hand, lifting here, opening there, making sure a ghostly couple. Here we left it, she said, and he added, Oh, but here too. It's upstairs, she murmured, and in the garden, he whispered, quietly, 
they said, or we shall wake them. But it wasn't that you woke us. Oh, no. They're looking for it. They're drawing the curtain, one might say, and so read on a page or two. Now they've found it, one would be certain, stopping the pencil on the margin. And then, tired of reading, one might rise and see for oneself, the house all empty, the doors standing open, only the wood pigeons bubbling with content, and the hum of the threshing machine sounding from the farm. What did I come in here for? What did I want to find? My hands were empty. Perhaps it's upstairs then? The apples were in the loft, and so down again, the garden still as ever, only the book had slipped into the grass. But they had found it in the drawing room, not that one could ever see them. The window panes reflected apples, reflected roses, all the leaves were green in the glass. If they moved in the drawing room, the apple only turned its yellow side. Yet the moment after, if the door was opened, spread about the floor, hung upon the walls, pendant from the ceiling, what? My hands were empty. The shadow of a thrush crossed the carpet. From the deepest wells of silence, the wood pigeon drew its bubble of sound. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beat softly. The treasure buried, the room. The pulse stopped short. Ah, oh, was that the buried treasure? A moment later, the light had faded. Out in the garden, then? But the trees spun darkness for a wandering beam of sun. So fine, so rare. Coolly sunk beneath the surface, the beam I sought always burnt behind the glass. Death was the glass, death was between us, coming to the woman first, hundreds of years ago, leaving the house, sealing all the windows, the rooms were darkened. He left it, left her, went north, went east, saw the stars turned in the southern sky, sought the house, found it dropped beneath the downs. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beat gladly. The treasure yours. The wind roars up the avenue. Trees stoop and bend this way and that. Moonbeams splash and spill wildly in the rain. But the beam of the lamp falls straight from the window. The candle burns stiff and still. Wandering through the house, opening the windows, whispering not to wake us, the ghostly couple seek their joy. Here we slept. She says, and he adds, kisses without number. Waking in the morning, silver between the trees, upstairs in the garden, when summer came in winter snow time. The doors go shutting far in the distance, gently knocking like the pulse of a heart. Nearer they come, cease at the doorway. The wind falls, the rain slides silver down the glass. Our eyes darken, we hear no steps beside us, we see no lady spread her ghostly cloak. His hands shield the lantern. Look, he breathes, sound asleep, love upon their lips. Stooping, 
holding their silver lamp above us, long they look and deeply. Long they pause. The wind drives straightly. The flame stoops slightly. Wild beams of moonlight cross both floor and wall and, meeting, stain the faces bent, the faces pondering, the faces that search the sleepers and seek their hidden joy. Safe, safe, safe. The heart of the house beats proudly. Long years, he sighs, again you found me. Here, she murmurs, sleeping, in the garden, reading, laughing, rolling apples in the loft. Here we left our treasure. Stooping, their light lifts the lids upon my eyes. Safe, 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 the pulse of the house beats wildly. Waking, I cry, oh, is this your buried treasure? The light in the heart. What the hell was that? <laughs> I'm imagining what it's like to hear a noise when you're in bed, that far-off door creaking open, but I'm also talking about the story. What was that? It's eerie, to be sure, but it's, all, it's so all over the place, too. It's a little hard to track. But then that's how things are in a fever dream, isn't it? Or a nightmare. You're in your head looking out. You're outside your head looking at yourself. You're being watched and imagining the watcher and watching the watcher imagine you. So this is modernism, a modernist ghost story, cracking open a narrative and giving us something else. The narrator hears a sound and hears the ghosts talking. They're looking for something. They left it somewhere, maybe upstairs, maybe the garden. What's this thing that they're seeking? The narrator doesn't know. She's out in the garden and hears them again. It's almost like the house can talk. Safe, 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 it says over and over. The pulse of the house. You see them? Can she see them? No chance. It's all reflections of apples and leaves in the window. Imagine those shimmering signs of autumn coming out of the glare. And these two are not always together. They're a couple that, that come together and break apart. She finds him. Sometimes they're alone. Sometimes they're together again after she's found him. Sometimes they reminisce, thinking about the bed they once slept into, and there are people there now living in that bed. And our ghostly couple watches them and, and recall, the two of them recall their own time there. They look for their buried treasure. It's gone. And then in the final sentence, the narrator wakes up and sees what it is or guesses. Before we talk about that, about her guess, let's ask ourselves a question. Is this a ghost at all? Are these ghosts real? Or is this about the feeling we give ourselves that a ghost is real? That feeling we have that we're not alone. That feeling we have that something sinister is lurking or someone familiar is there. 
trying to see us, trying to communicate. I used to have this feeling that something followed me through dark spaces. And I would turn around and it could disappear. I would sometimes walk through our basement in the dark and I wouldn't know what to do. Turn around and make the follower disappear? Or was that worse? That would slow me down and confirm my worst suspicions. But if I went forward without turning around, how would I know what it was doing back there? Maybe it was looming up behind me, its arms out, ready to grab me. Shouldn't I turn around to make it disappear? To let it know I wasn't scared? Or should I just race forward to avoid it altogether, to get upstairs and back to the light as quickly as possible? Virginia Woolf, the same year that she wrote A Haunted House, wrote an essay about Henry James's ghost stories. And she says, in effect, I won't quote her yet, she, this is a paraphrase, she says, hey, we've outgrown ghost stories, we're immune to their wonder and terror. But that's not the problem of ghost stories, it's the problem of the writers of them. She says, quote, If the old methods are obsolete, it is the business of a writer to discover new ones. The public can feel again what it has once felt. There can be no doubt about that. Only from time to time, the point of attack must be changed. End quote. The point of attack. Well, we just heard her point of attack to slide point of view together, to deliver a narrative in fragments, in snatches, in a slippery way, not the smooth and polished narration of a storyteller who, who clears his throat and, and sits in his easy chair and feeds us by spoon. Here, the spoon, the feeding spoon, floats and darts and hits us from all sides, our mind and our open mouth hungry, lunge at what they can. We don't rest afterwards, well-fed. We remember the experience and think that was desperate and disorienting. I think I got a few mouthfuls along the way. We're four years before Mrs. Dalloway and ten years before The Waves. Narrative by stream of consciousness or collage is not yet familiar to Virginia Woolf or to her readers. She's still working it out. Who's speaking and to whom? Who's thinking what? This all slides together. The effect is more like a prose poem than a story. We feel sex rather than hear it described. We feel nature. We feel the supernatural. We feel the uncanny. We catch glimpses of this and that rather than sit comfy while the storyteller explains everything we need to know to us. Kisses without number. The phrase conjures up romance without us really knowing what kind of romance is being referred to or practiced or by whom exactly, what it means to the participants. Virginia Woolf gave Henry James credit for ghost stories that were more modern than, let's say, Anne Radcliffe, who wrote gothic novels like The Mysteries of Udolpho in the 1790s. She says, quote, Henry James's ghosts have nothing in common with the violent old ghosts, the blood-stained sea captains, the white horses, the headless ladies of dark lanes and windy commons. They have their origin within us. 
They are present whenever the significant overflows our powers of expressing it, whenever the ordinary appears ringed by the strange. The baffling things that are left over, the frightening ones that persist, these are the emotions that he takes, embodies, makes consoling and companionable. She says that turn, the turn of the screw can still make us afraid of the dark. We read the book at night for an hour or so, thinking, what's the harm? This is entertainment. We will sleep better after we finish. And then this happens. Quote, we are afraid of something, perhaps in ourselves. In short, we turn on the light. End quote. That's Virginia Woolf talking about Henry James, sort of a modern master of ghost stories. Okay. Speaking of light, the conclusion, the light in the heart. Two ways to look at this one, right? One, is it frightening that ghosts are looking all over the house for the light in the heart? And two, is it frightening that a narrator imagines that the buried treasure is the light in the heart? What is the light in the heart? Life itself? The life force? Happiness? The secret key to unlock? What exactly? What exactly would it unlock? How to live and live well? What is the light in the heart? Let's add another potential wrinkle. The dream ends, the narrator wakes and cries out frantic. Well, who was Virginia Woolf in 1921? She was living in a house that she rented in the country after doctors suggested that she leave London to help her recover from a mental breakdown. Could the story be someone? A portrait of someone in psychological agony. And is this limited to Virginia alone, or does it include the millions of soldiers who suffered during World War I just a few years before, or the millions more family members who grieved their losses or struggled to cope with the torment of those who returned? If we imagine thoughts and feelings as being all connected to one another in a cosmic way, then this is a period where the planet is swimming in heartache and pain, a world uncertain, disconnected, fragmentary, a people clinging to a past before the great disruption. In this version, in this view of the world, the house isn't haunted, the planet is. What is our buried treasure? The light at the heart, an innocent past, perhaps a less troubled time, the sweetness and safety of childhood or youth or pre-trauma. Could that be the light in the heart? It's not the blood in the heart or the courage in the heart. It's the light. Is that love, companionship, human connection, life? Let's hear the story one more time and see what we think. I think it's a story that bears rereading. And hopefully you will agree, re-listening. It's not long. A Haunted House by Virginia Woolf Whatever hour you woke, there was a door shutting. From room to room they went, hand in hand, lifting here, opening there, making sure. A ghostly couple. Here we left it, she said, and he added, oh, but here too. It's upstairs, 
she murmured, and in the garden, he whispered. Quietly, they said, or we shall wake them. But it wasn't that you woke us. Oh, no, they're looking for it. They're drawing the curtain, one might say, and so read on a page or two. Now they've found it, one would be certain, stopping the pencil on the margin. And then, tired of reading, one might rise and see for oneself the house all empty, the doors standing open, only the wood pigeons bubbling with content, and the hum of the threshing machines sounding from the farm. What did I come in here for? What did I want to find? My hands were empty. Perhaps it's upstairs, then? The apples were in the loft. And so, down again, the garden as still as ever, only the book had slipped into the grass. But they had found it in the drawing room, not that one could ever see them. The window panes reflected apples, reflected roses, all the leaves were green in the glass. If they moved in the drawing room, the apple only turned its yellow side. Yet the moment after... If the door was opened, spread about the floor, hung upon the walls, pendant from the ceiling, what? My hands were empty. The shadow of a thrush crossed the carpet. From the deepest wells of silence, the wood pigeon drew its bubble of sound. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beat softly. The treasure buried, the room... The pulse stopped short. Oh, was that the buried treasure? A moment later, the light had faded. Out in the garden, then? But the trees spun darkness for a wandering beam of sun. So fine, so rare, coolly sunk beneath the surface, the beam I sought always burnt behind the glass. Death was the glass. Death was between us, coming to the woman first, hundreds of years ago leaving the house, sealing all the windows, the rooms were darkened. He left it, left her, went north, went east, saw the stars turned in the southern sky, sought the house, found it dropped beneath the downs. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beat gladly, the treasure yours. The wind roars up the avenue, trees stoop and bend this way and that, moonbeams splash and spill wildly in the rain. But the beam of the lamp falls straight from the window, the candle burns stiff and still. Wandering through the house, opening the windows, whispering not to wake us, the ghostly couple seek their joy. Here we slept, she says, and he adds, kisses without number. Waking in the morning, silver between the trees, upstairs, in the garden, when summer came, in winter snowtime. The doors go shutting far in the distance, gently knocking like the pulse of a heart. Nearer they come, cease at the doorway, the wind falls, the rain slides silver down the glass. Our eyes darken, we hear no steps beside us, we see no lady spread her ghostly cloak. His hands shield the lantern. Look, he breathes, sound asleep, love upon their lips. Stooping, holding their silver lamp above us, long they look and deeply, long they pause. 
The wind drives straightly, the flame stoops slightly. Wild beams of moonlight cross both floor and wall, and, meeting, stain the faces bent, the faces pondering, the faces that search the sleepers and seek their hidden joy. Safe, safe, safe. The heart of the house beats proudly. Long years, he sighs, again you've found me. Here, she murmurs, sleeping, in the garden, reading, laughing, rolling apples in the loft. Here we left our treasure. Stooping, their light lifts the lids upon my eyes. Safe, safe, safe. The pulse of the house beats wildly. Waking, I cry, oh, is this your buried treasure? The light in the heart. Okay, fantastic stuff. The more I read that story, the more I appreciate it. I'm tempted to read it a third time. Ah, oh, what a story. Hmm, Virginia Woolf. It's not a surprise, I guess, that her works are worth rereading. She is one of those literary titans, my queen. Okay. Let's wrap things up today with my last book. How about Max Saunders, who was here to discuss Ford Maddox Ford, a contemporary of Virginia Woolf's, if not exactly a bosom companion. After we talked about Ford, I asked Max this special question. Okay, I'm joined now by Max Saunders, professor at the University of Birmingham and expert in the life and works of Ford Maddox Ford. Max, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. It's hard to think of a better answer to that fabulous question than Umberto Echoes, I think, in his novel, The Name of the Rose. Mm. In, in that book, it's Aristotle's treatise on comedy. Yeah, which was lost. Which was lost, because we've only got the first part of, of right, history, the, right. the one on tragedy. Yeah. Um, and in Echo's novel, the, the monks who, who have the only surviving copy think it's so subversive that they hide it and they coat the pages with poison. So it's literally the last book of anyone who discovers it, because <laughs> you know, they, they turn the pages and touch the pages and then have to lick their fingers to turn the next pages, and that's it. And it's a wonderful idea, isn't it? Because it suggests that the whole history of literature could have been quite different if only we knew that book. Yes. Um, right. and, and knew the liberating potential of laughter that it presumably tells us about. Right. Because, for example, Aristotle's uh, work on tragedy was was used as almost a how-to manual by subsequent writers, including Shakespeare. And you can imagine if if we had, you know, a lot of Aristotle's books are almost like lecture notes. You can imagine if we had his outline on comedy and how it works, it could have changed uh, the writing of a lot of our favorite writers or introduced us to new people who would have been inspired by it and, and written a new vein of joyous works inspired by Aristotle's rules on comedy. That's right. And, and we might also know a bit about those crazy satire plays that they put on immediately after the tragedies mm. that we have hardly any examples of at all. Yeah, right. Well, 
I will give you this then for your last book. You can uh, read The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, just longing for it. And then magically, the uh, the lost book of Aristotle's work on comedy will appear in your hands, and that will be given to you as your your final book that you can read. That's very generous. <laughs> <laughs> Max Saunders, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Happy October, everyone. We have some good episodes on tap for you this month. Not all will be Halloween-focused. We're going to look at the author of Black Beauty and one of the 20th century's great American poets. And maybe sneak in a little Homer and a little Herman Hess. Maybe this should be H month. Haunted House, Herman Hess, Homer and his Iliad. The Headless Horseman, we'll have that. Hollow, as in Sleepy. Hartha, as in Sid. Hurston, as in Zora Neale. The H's are taking over, people. Hold on to your hats. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank to thank you for listening. And we'll hear you next time. Thank you.